Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, uh, for our listeners, Ricky had a microphone malfunction, so she sounds a little bit less crisp today. It's not because of anything to do with her. It's just the technology. It's just the AirPods that have like such inadequate microphones. I don't, yeah. They're terrible. <laughs> they're always horrible. So sorry, but I'm in the office and this is just what we're going to have to work with today. Well, this is a fun episode. This is a best of episode. We're going to run through things. Uh, we're going to look back on, on 2023 and, and talk about things related to the show, the news generally, the world generally uh, that stood out to us from last year. And we'll look ahead to next year. And wow, 2023 was a crazy year. Actually, I was looking back over a lot of this stuff. I couldn't believe some of these stories were from this year. It feels like so long ago, Ricky. But let's actually start with the show. Let's talk about what our favorite segment from the show was. Why don't you kick us off? I think my favorite is a little bit self-aggrandizing because it's based on my own reporting at the New York Post. But we did a segment on sextortion and um, had some sound bites from a father who tragically lost his son as a result of um, him just being targeted and extorted on the internet in a really vicious and cruel way. And I found researching that article and then also talking about it to just be one of the most kind of impactful journalistic endeavors that I've had of just finding these people in the middle of nowhere who really hadn't been getting enough attention for a widespread phenomenon and tragedy that that seems to be something that people kind of cower away in shame about um, and finding people willing to talk to me about it. And then discussing it on the show, I think was great to raise some awareness about an issue that is actually touching more and more families. Yeah, that was a great segment, great article. Yeah. I mean, one of the great privileges of the show, I think, is you get to learn about stuff like that for a living, like do a deep dive like that. It was an issue that I honestly, even as somebody who was a former educator, hadn't really given enough thought to. But sticking on kids stuff, uh, my favorite segment, I mean, there were a lot of segments I love from this year, but we did this episode called Invisible Kids, where we talked about uh, the orphanage system and the foster care system and uh, I really loved this. It was sad, obviously. It's it's weird to say I loved it, but it was it was so enlightening, so important. This work by Dr. Christine Keneally, who wrote the book Ghosts of the Orphanage, all about that Vermont orphanage that was such a horrible place. Just an issue you just don't hear enough about. Uh, I actually couldn't believe it was this year. That one was from April of this past year. Felt like so long ago. Uh, we'll put both of those episodes in the show notes. But to take a, a, a tonal shift, Ricky. What was your favorite scandal? I think I can guess. Uh, really? Your okay, what's your guess? I think Santos is going to be your favorite scandal. Hell yes. I'm like so fascinated with his spectacle. I can't believe that that was this year too. I wrote an article recently for the New York Post where I interviewed reality TV producers about what they would do with him. And one of them, his pitch was like, taking George Santos and making him do the jobs and things that he's claims that he's done in his past and like spinning a whole show out of it. So like George Santos <laughs> actually plays volleyball. That is a good he's idea. Apparently a champion or like George Santos captures cats on the street to get them spayed because apparently he had a charity that he didn't actually have that did that. I just think the whole, it's like my Gen Z nihilism coming out because it's absolutely disgusting and despicable and so below the office. But then also I'm like, Politics have been so disgusting and despicable that at least this guy's kind of shameless and it can be entertaining to watch. So, yeah, that's <laughs> definitely my favorite scandal. I, mean, I, have the, I think the OnlyFans uh, 
and Botox with campaign finances was just really the the cherry on top for me. I didn't even realize he had Botox with campaign finances. I mean, I could see one. Oh, yeah, you could see it all. Like it is, He's definitely had a brow lift, too. I was arguing with my editor about that today. I mean, he probably technically could argue his way through that one and say, you know, in this era, you know, if, if he had if he had expensed makeup, for example, for TV appearances, that would be OK. I mean, it's hard to draw the line. I mean, it's absurd, but it is hard to draw the line between. What about OnlyFans? That is hard. I mean, I don't know what he would. Winning I voters campaigning <laughs> on OnlyFans. Yeah, I mean, if he actually <laughs> used it for the purposes of reaching voters, who could who could argue with it? But. Before I dig myself a hole there, yeah, I, I, I've not been as into the, the, the Santos stuff as a lot of people, but I, I, know, I know you well enough to know that that had to be your number one. My, mine is a little less fun in the sense that it's the, the Clarence Thomas uh, Supreme Court scandals and all the associated Supreme Court scandals uh, in the past year plus. And the reason why I call it my favorite is because it actually led to some change. You know, it's not binding change, but it did lead to a change to the Supreme Court's ethics practices, which... It's rare that you see quick enough action like this. You know, only time will tell whether it's enough to prevent any ethical lapses, but that was a pleasant surprise to see the court act. Let's switch to the issue you most changed your mind about this year, Ricky. I'll let you go first. Just spice it up. Uh, I had a couple of options here. Two education-related, uh, which is this sort of associated world of vouchers and homeschooling. And it's not like I was against homeschooling or against vouchers. I would just say that I've become more sympathetic to people who seek those options over the course of the year. I wouldn't say I'm like fully on board with the sort of Bolsheviks on those issues, but I'm, I'm way more sympathetic at the end of the year than I was at the beginning of the year. I would say a non-education issue that I've changed my mind. And it's hard to say what the precise thing I changed my mind on it is the immigration in the sense that I've generally been fairly permissive when it comes to immigration for economic reasons. Like I think that the country, especially in, in, in an era of inflation and wage inflation, should be letting more people into the country. I think two things have kind of cooled me on my position on immigration. I still believe in smart immigration into this country and making it a humane and thoughtful process but number one, inflation has become less of an issue. But two is the inability of any city in this country, really, including the bluest of blue sanctuary cities to, to grapple with the influx of people has to challenge anybody who believes in uh, a dramatic increase in the amount of people we let into this country. And so that's kind of where I am today. Yeah, one that, so I'm going to kind of slightly alter the prompt, but I think it's like a a preconception that I think was most challenged for me um, was I just don't think this was a great year for free speech on the right in general. And I think I was more under the illusion that some people who said that they were free speech champions and like truly believed in those principles who came from the right in the past meant it a little bit more when it was not uncomfortable positions that they were put in or um, they were actually asked to defend the speech. Of course, there's like a whole like we can go down the the rabbit hole of harassment and incitement and the first amendment lines but i do think between boycotts over cultural culture war issues and also the israel palestine conflict there's been a redrawing of lines and i think like in the same way that in the the 60s the left was a champion of free speech on campus because 
the administration tended to be more conservative and, and left-wing students felt that their views could not be heard. It definitely flipped to where I think a lot of conservative students rightfully feel that they are kind of stifled on campus, but people only show their true colors when the tides kind of flip and it requires you to actually defend speech that you might hate or find absolutely reprehensible and beyond the pale. So I think, not that I ever thought that free speech was a partisan issue, but I think my faith in the fact that more conservatives actually believed in the principle and not its like side effects and its benefits um, was definitely challenged. Yeah, you had a, a bit of a tussle with Chris Rufo on the internet, from what I understand, on this subject. I did. <laughs> yeah, I've been um, kind of at the center of some infighting on the, the right wing. Mm. Uh, apparently, I believe in the fairy of liberalism, which is... <laughs> Thanks, Chris Rufo. I'm very happy to be apparently on, on the side of uh, you fluffy folks. Yeah, I've been trying to get him. To, I've been trying to get him to come on one of our any of our shows, this one or any other, for a while because we've got some common friends. But he doesn't seem to seek out anybody who will challenge his views uh, unless they're like a character. Well, fall on Twitter. Yeah. So yeah, just yeah. get him on. Okay, what about the person you changed your mind about the most? Uh, this actually came from the most recent episode that we put up. This was the episode. Um, that we did with uh, Rob Copeland, who wrote the uh, the fund, the book about Ray Dalio and all that. And I mentioned two people, and I'll group them together, that I was hard on in that episode, Scott Galloway and Adam Grant. Uh, and as I mentioned in that episode, they both kind of came out of this Dalio scandal looking really bad. In the case of Grant, he did a partnership with Bridgewater and... Dalio and wrote about him in the book. And, you know, as somebody who's an organizational psychologist and writes about creating positive workplaces and professional growth, he just did really shoddy work and appeared to just be bought and sold. And then Galloway had on the, the author that we had, Rob Copeland, and transparently didn't read the book, but called it a hit job and appeared to be carrying water for Dalio. And I think the combination of those two gave me a, a like a sort of a realization that a lot of these public intellectuals are kind of full of shit, even the ones I really have liked in the past and and often enjoy hearing because they're like compelling people and they could be persuasive, but it's just they don't prepare and they seem overextended often. And so I think I'm cooling on some of these people who I'd previously, I think, done good work in the past. Um, so it's kind of a bummer, I guess. <laughs> so I'm not, not, so those are people I've changed my mind in the negative. Hmm. I have a more positive one, but I can already hear my mother, like, I'm going to get a phone call about this. I haven't fully changed my mind on him, but Gavin Newsom, I think, gets more points in my book than he would have before. I think he will never live down the French laundry meal. He will never <laughs> live down his kids in private schools while public schools were shuttered all over the state. However, I found the fact that he actually did an interview with Sean Hannity on Fox News to be impressive. I thought that he stood his ground better than I would have expected. And I respected the fact that he and DeSantis actually had a debate and demonstrated what I think Trump and Biden should be doing and owe to voters. And so, yeah, I would say that he he moved into a more favorable category from a really bad starting <laughs> point. So it's all relative, but I, my mom's going to be really mad that was a, a, a California former resident. Oh, I did not expect that one. All right. Favorite book. 
I'm going to pick a different one. For those who listen to both this and, and Majority 54, I gave a list of them on Majority 54, but I, I, I realized after I gave that list that there was a big one I did not mention, which is an older book that I had read for the first time this year, which is called Dispatches from Pluto by Richard Grant. It's all about this British writer who sets up in the Mississippi Delta and wrote what I, th- I think a lot of people I know down in Mississippi will say is one of the most accurate depictions of life in the Mississippi Delta that has ever been written. And the Mississippi Delta is a mystical, beautiful, but also deeply troubled place in many ways. It's, it's one of my favorite places in America. It's certainly one of the most unique places in America. I went there earlier this year for work. And it's just a beautiful book. And it, and it gets well beyond the Mississippi experience. And I think it it took an outsider, I think, in many ways to capture the contours of race in the South and to do so in ways that I think are bold and literary and interesting in, in ways that were risky, but he somehow pulled it off. And so I think it's a beautiful book. It's well worth reading and it'll make you want to visit the Delta, which I highly recommend to anybody in this podcast because it's a, it's, a, it's a truly cool and remarkable place. So Dispatches from Pluto. Hmm. I would say I have two here. Um, one is old and one is from this year. The old one is East of Eden by John Steinbeck. I'm like nearly finished with, and I've just found it to be such a worthwhile read, even though it's absolutely enormous. <laughs> um, and then the one from this year is, this sounds like really politically fringe, but it's not like it's written by someone from the left, but it's the case against the sexual revolution by Louise Perry. And I think it challenges a lot of kind of current sexual politics in a tactful and thought-provoking and like provocative but not purposefully so way. I feel like the the title is a little bit misleading to the tone of the actual book and I think it's it's well worth a read. Hmm. Fascinating. I don't think I've ever even heard of that book. Okay, favorite movie slash TV show. This is probably going to be a tough one for you, Ricky. What have you got? Yeah, I ha- I literally have to pass. I did not watch. <laughs> I don't think I watched a single movie. I definitely didn't watch any TV series. I I may have like been socially coerced into a movie at not some point Purple in 2023. Hearts. No, I don't know what that is. Isn't, remember oh, is that Hearts, the one that we had to do forever ago? Yeah, yeah. I think that was like before this year, wasn't it? I think that might have been this year, but I could be wrong. This year. Uh, no, I don't think I've watched a whole movie this year. I really don't like that medium of like, I'd much rather read or stare at a wall, frankly. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'll mention one that's timely. And, and by the time we air this, it, there could be more news on this front. But I watched the Navalny documentary on my way back from India. And I think it was created the year before. I think it won Best Documentary at the Oscars the year before. But if you have not seen it yet, it's well worth seeing. I think I've probably mentioned on this podcast before, but he's currently missing, which a lot of people think means he could be dead. We might know by the time this airs, whether that's true or not. But I had not known a lot about him and he's super courageous, inspiring person. And it's a really well done documentary with some riveting scenes. And his choice at the end of the movie, the documentary, which is, you know, I'm not, you know, spoiling anything because this is, you know, if you pay attention to the news, you'll know this is after he had been poisoned uh, by Putin, and he went. Tre- he got treatment in Germany. He left his family in Germany to go back to Russia to continue his political fight, knowing full well he would get arrested. Uh, and he decided to do it anyway, even though he had asylum. And I thought that was a 
unbelievably courageous act uh, that probably cost him his life. And so that's basically how the documentary ends. It's it's really tragic, but really, really worth a watch, especially as we try to figure out what happened to this guy. Well, okay. Let me bring up the mood a little bit. Your favorite song from this year. It could be from this year or something you discovered this year. Um, I have like gone down a weird bossa nova rabbit hole, but that's a little niche. So I'll say like, I don't think this is from this year, but I like the song Good Looking by Soupy Waterhouse. She's a more modern kind of bossa nova inspired artist that I've discovered this year. But also I've had a Grimes phase, which is probably just part of my like Elon Stan Mm. persona. So I've actually never heard her music. I know her as a known affiliate of of Elon, but I don't think I've ever heard Oblivion is a good song. And so is Genesis. But some of the stuff is like super weird. I'll have to check it out. A little too meta. On it, you know, on mine is an old, old music, but it's um, this guy is sticking with the Mississippi blues. When I was down, uh, I think I actually heard it's related to Dispatches from Pluto. In Des- Dispatches from Pluto, he mentions a blues artist named Junior Kimbrough. And then I was in this town in Mississippi Delta where Fat Possum Records is based, which is a record label down in the Mississippi Delta, which produced Junior Kimbrough. And so I started listening to their music at this. this Blues Club, just as I was reading the book, and I just became totally enthralled by this guy. Uh, and he is, I think it's called Hill Country Blues, like blues from the northern part of Mississippi. It is awesome. So check out uh, Junior Kimbrough. My favorite song is this song called Feels So Bad. And he has a song called Feels So Good, which is also really good. Um, his songs are, they're, he names them like that, but it's uh, he's great, if you like blues especially. All right, favorite internet personality. This is such a 2023 category. <laughs> um, okay, so mine is a podcaster, but like who's also sort of in a social media presence. Um, I found that Chris Williamson's podcast has been so unexpectedly something that like is tra- I'm just turned into such a self improvement bro because of it, and I find him to be really compelling as a podcaster. But I put him in this influencer category because he started as a contestant on Love Island. Like that's his origin story, which I did not know when I first started listening to him. And I admit I would have a hundred percent like been like that. I'm not listening to a podcast that someone who's been on Love Island is hosting. And yet he like totally defies the stereotypes, I think. And I, we just recorded a podcast, but I feel like he's an interesting character who is with a strange trajectory. Yeah, I don't know anything about him, but the YouTube algorithms send his videos my way, and I've watched a few of them, and he seems like a super nice guy. And obviously, I like that stuff. I mean, it's why the algorithm sends it my way. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you're get, you're, you're jumping on the self improvement train. I would say, like as a, as a sort of big picture point on this, YouTube is unbelievably awesome, uh, and I want to figure out how to do more next year on YouTube. It just has like whatever you're trying to figure out. Like, it has some amazingly well-produced videos that can tell you everything from a very finite skill to like expansive skills that universities don't even do particularly well. I think it's somehow underrated, which I, I don't even know how that's possible. But, but on that front, there's this guy named Ali Abdal, who is a British-based uh, former surgeon, young guy, who has a YouTube channel and a whole bunch of other things. He has a book coming out at the beginning of the year called Feel Good Productivity. And he is just one of the most thoughtful people when it comes to how to manage your time, how to find purpose in life, how to 
launch companies, how to bootstrap companies. Like I'm a big believer as somebody who has a lot of friends who've gone the VC route with companies and then a lot of friends who've started their own companies that the bootstrap route, meaning, you know, starting a company small, building it small, and then going big without taking a lot of investment is like an interesting and under-discussed route in certain elite circles in the United States. Uh, and he just has a lot to say. Uh, he's just a super duper smart person and he's got a massive following. Uh, and he's, he's one of these people, like there's just a ton of them on YouTube who just spends all day creating videos that will help improve your life. Biggest life change, Ricky. I think this year I'm like going to sound so trad in this podcast, but I've definitely like had my religious awakening. And like I used to, like if I was on the treadmill, I'd be listening to like bangers at full volume. And now I'm listening to like gospel of life with Tim Keller podcast. Oh my God. And it's like, I know, I don't even know who I am. It was like free ayahuasca without the risk of like psychosis. And my whole worldview has changed for some reason. I have no idea why out of nowhere, but like I'm, I'm fully born again, which is weird. Keller, you know, I used to date a super devout uh, woman in, in Nashville who, who really loved Keller. So I spent uh, about a year deeply immersed in Keller and as a, and I, I always found him a very compelling person. And I'm reading this book now because I'm interviewing him tomorrow. Uh, this book about the evangelical movement, which I know there's, you know, Keller is kind of related to that, not really squarely within the book. But um, there's just like, especially people on the left don't understand this sort of the history of very, the history and sort of different categories of different types of church leaders and religious leaders in the United States. As I was reading this book, I was like, wow, there's just like a lot here. Okay. The biggest life change, I mean, there's a lot this year, but I would say the biggest is moving to Brooklyn, you know, which is the borough from which I was born. But I think the the change from Manhattan, where you live, to Brooklyn is way more stark than I would have realized, at least from where I moved in Manhattan to where I moved in Brooklyn. Like where I was living in Manhattan was very, very loud, very, very busy, very, very transient. So like my, I, I never had, you know, same neighbors for more than a year at a time and businesses come and go. It's a much different vibe. I love Manhattan to Brooklyn now where it's more families, more continuity, more people, at least in the neighborhood I live in who are in the neighborhood for the long haul, way more schools, way quieter. And I don't actually think one is necessarily better than the other. I think at this point in my life, Brooklyn makes a lot more sense for me. And I joked that I was kind of moving to the suburbs, but it's, I love my neighborhood. I'm, I'm way more productive in Brooklyn than I was in Manhattan. And when I go to Manhattan, it's like an assault on the senses in a way that I, I just took for granted while, when I was living there. So um, I guess that's my- Robbie, you're just getting old. It, that is for sure. Uh, I'm fighting it as much as I can. Biggest win from the year, Ricky? I think publishing the book. Finally yes. getting it out there was was definitely mine. Congratulations on that again. I'm surviving Jordan Peterson asking me what to do about the fact that women are feminized institutions. <laughs> Somehow wiggling out of that question in a way that didn't perturb anyone too much. That I think that was my biggest win, actually, more specifically. Congrats again on that. I know that's a huge undertaking. My biggest win is, I guess, related in the sense that it'll be this week. So by the time this air, it will be finished. But I'm, as we're speaking, I'm in the middle of my final chapter of this novel I'd been working on all year. 
And it was the hardest thing I've done professionally since probably starting a school because it's just not something I'm good at. I think the older you get, the more you you kind of lean into things that come easier. Uh, and when you're a kid, because you know, when you're a kid, unless you you're born with some innate talent, everything is has a huge learning curve because it's new to you. Mm-hmm. But at a certain point, you get good at certain things. And I think I had spent a period of time where I was before I kind of started doing this one skill a year thing, where I was kind of focusing on a lot of things that I was good at. Especially running arena was just something that came naturally to me. And I think I've spent the past five years kind of taking on more and more things that are extremely difficult. And I would say that this is the hardest of the five years of sort of one skill a year. And it's just not something that I would, I would, I come in with any innate talent for. And so it has been extremely difficult. And I spent the first half of the year dreading getting in front of the computer and going through periods of time where I wouldn't write at all and having like you know, negative feelings about it to the second half of the year where I've now been on a bit of a run, especially post-India. I've basically written half of the book. I think I basically scrapped half of the book and rewrote it since I got back from India and I've been on a huge run. So we'll see what the powers that be at CAA and other places decide what to do with the book. But just having finished it, I, or about to finish it, I feel just a tremendous sense of accomplishment and weight off my shoulders. So yeah. Congrats. Yeah. I've grown attached to these characters. I was actually like, like getting misty. Like when I was writing a scene involved (laughs) something about one of my characters who was the last scene that I was going to have with this character. I was like, wow, I couldn't believe I've gotten that to that point. All right. This is a fun one. Most unexpected hot take. I'll let you go first. (laughs) So I don't think, I think I've never surprised you once all year. No, no, no. It's not that you don't surprise me. It's that you're not like a in a box ideologically in a way that like of you would be shocking. You're a unique specimen. You know, you're not like a MAGA Republican. You're not a liberal Democrat. You know, so I think to say something was like truly surprising would be it would be to like assume that you have some kind of belief system that graphs neatly onto some other ideological strain but i would say it's just my like ambient political chaos that's <laughs> just no longer shocking you <laughs> no i think like i would say like i'll, I'll, I'll give two answers to this one is I, I what i know the audience reacts to a lot is what you had mentioned earlier about the the book you recommended in the peterson appearance which is your being a gen z woman who often says things about feminism and about the sort of standing of men in this country and boys and all of that. And just that whole world, um, you venturing into it, I think often provokes reactions, good, bad, negative, positive. I personally enjoy the conversations and I know a lot of people in our audience do, but I also know that a lot of people probably, you probably get a lot of heat for that as mentioned by your sort of Peterson appearance or what you were trying to avoid there. I think the surprising one, and maybe with your Chris Williamson comment, I think you you might be changing on this a little bit, is like, you seem a little bit allergic to the self-improvement culture generally when the stuff comes up a lot, but I think it sounds like you're warming to it, which I'm very excited by, because I do think like it's, it can be really annoying, but I also think there's a bit of a renaissance if you sort of sift through all the like 90% of garbage out there and you find the 10% of stuff that is really thoughtful and meaningful. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's a really, really interesting time 
for the question of what makes a good life and the conversation on, on the internet and in books. Yeah. I feel like there's something about the fact that that, like my warming to aspects of that happened at the same time that I feel like I became more religious this year, where I think what I'm allergic to is, this is not a personal, this is not about you, but I think I'm allergic to a, like the self-help, self-maximalization culture that doesn't, like if that's all you're thinking about and then that you're like internally folding in upon yourself and like constantly thinking about yourself as an entity in the center of the universe and then self-maximalizing, then I don't like that culture and it feels like a narcissistic endeavor and we're all going to die ultimately. And it just makes me, I don't know. But now that I've like expanded my worldview, I'm less allergic to that because I feel like if that's not your be all end all, then it's okay. But otherwise I feel like there's like a part of the self-help internet culture where it's like you as you're like the center of the world kind of like God figure and how do you make you the best you? And then that, I don't know, feels a little vapid to me. Yeah, I mean, this is such an interesting point that I've been having conversations with a bunch of people about. And I and I do think that the what we call self-help, I don't know what the right word is for it, but it has evolved, I think, a lot where there's a greater emphasis on community. I think that the conversations that Arthur Brooks is having about what makes a good life and people like Bill Perkins, who wrote Die With Zero, and a lot of these types of figures are emphasizing community and commitment and things like that, which it could be narrowly discussed as self-help, but also it's the question, like, in my opinion, is like, what does it mean to live a good life and have a sense of purpose? I think is beyond like, how do you have an efficient day or whatever? It can be framed that way. So it's like, how do you get the most out of your day professionally can mean a lot of things. It could mean like, professionally, how do you get more out of purpose and how do you achieve more of your dreams, but also how do you right-size the amount of time you spent professionally so you could spend it more with your family, your friends, your community, all that kind of stuff. And and the point you make, like you have to kind of put it in a larger context of like, what do you want to get out of life? And who do you want to commit to? What do you want to commit to? Who are your people? What's your community? What's your sense of values? And I do see some of these thinkers morphing and emphasizing that more, which I think is welcome. All right. So predictions for 2024. Let's start with the GOP primary and then the general election. It's Trump as long as he lives as long to get there. But on both fronts, you're saying? For the primary. And then for the general, I think it's Trump and I think Vivek is his VP. So my prediction on this front is, my big picture prediction is, I think either Biden or Trump is not on the ballot in November. And it's just a feeling. It comes with no evidence whatsoever. Although there is actuarial evidence that at least suggests that that's a stronger possibility. I think it's more likely Biden. But I think when you combine the actuarial reality with the fact that Trump has all of these cases in front of him, with the fact that Biden has a lot of pressure to step down. And I think like each one of those things is not anywhere, in some cases, not even close to 50% chance of something happening, right? Like Biden is absolutely more likely to run than not. He's very certain to. Uh, Trump is uh, very likely to stay on the ballot, even if he gets in, uh, you know, um, convicted. He's likely to make it to the primary. But I think if you start to add up all these different independent probabilities and you combine it with the fact that the American people seem like they don't want this clash, I just have this feeling, and maybe it's just a hope that that is not the matchup that we have in November. 
that's my big picture take. Okay, Robbie, what are your predictions for the economy? I already know this after our debate about this recently. I want to caveat this by saying nobody knows anything. Uh, and I think that this sort of soft landing conversation is a good example of this. Like there were all these surveys of economists to say that there was a 0% chance of a soft landing. And now everybody's saying we're in a soft landing. And I, I, I want to just caveat to say that the one thing I've learned on economic stuff is it's so complicated. The world is so fast moving. There's so many variables that it's impossible to say. It seems though, with all that said, that the momentum is positive and that with rate cuts, very likely that there's a decent chance for a lot of positive economic news. But my prediction is that the positive economic news will continue to to go headfirst into political headwinds, and Mm -hmm. it will not translate into a widespread acknowledgement of such, but that it it won't be as stark as it is today because what will happen is the Democrats and Biden-friendly independents, as they get closer to the election, will buy the argument coming from Biden that the economy is good. Not just because it's accurate, although if it were today that he was making that argument, it would be, in my opinion, an accurate argument for reasons that we've talked about on other podcasts, but because this is what people in politics do, which is you buy the argument that is convenient to believe in an election year. And so I think the data will move, but it won't move people who aren't warm to Biden. That's my prediction. I'm going to say things are going to get bad and that the bubble of like things somehow still being sort of okay and the wheels are still like sort of on the bus post COVID is going to pop this year. And some of the kind of artificial ways that we're scaffolding our economy are going to crumble. That's what I think. But again, obviously not an economist. Anyone who's listened to this show for more than an episode knows that. And speaking of things I know nothing about, I'm going to give you the, I'm serving this one up to you entirely. This is my epistemic humility. I'm not an international commentator. And so I would love to hear, Robbie, what you think is going to happen in global affairs this year, because I'm going to pass. I mean, same caveats, obviously. I mean, we've done a lot more this year on, on global affairs than anything else. I'd say that it's just an observation. I think predictions on this are silly, right? So like to say, like, I think China is going to invade Taiwan, whatever, like that, that I'm not going to insult our audience by trying to even go there. But what I will say is that I think in this year, given especially the fact that Ukraine came hat in hand to the United States, and at least of, as of this recording seems like they didn't get what they needed. Combined with a lot of other things happening in this country that have been happening in this country and this world that have been happening for a long time, I think it will become increasingly obvious every year moving forward the lack of a uh, viable, robust narrative for liberal democracy around the world and any sense of a movement to protect and extend liberal democracy as a set of ideas, as a collection of countries as alliances. I just think that autocracy, both because of the rise of more intrusive technologies uh, that allow autocracies to flourish and sustain themselves, things that people like Noah Yuval Harari have written a lot about, uh, and even uh, Ilya uh, at OpenAI warned against, like these sort of, you know, airtight, entrenched 
autocracies and how AI can make that even more likely. I think the combination of that combined with the the failures of liberal democracies like the United States to to adhere to our own values and be anything less than a hot mess makes it really hard to protect and extend global democracy and counter narratives for autocracy. I saw this firsthand when I was in India, where the norms around democracy and the freedoms that we take for granted are as imperiled in the so-called world's largest democracy than they've ever been. So that's my prediction. Bummer. (laughs) (laughs) So let's hear your hot take for 2024. Is it any more? This is, yeah. And this gets worse. I think that 20, this is, and I hate to say this. I think that 2024 is going to make 2020 seem like a calm year. I think that, and I hope I'm wrong about this, but I, I think that there, I think there's going to be a lot of extremely dangerous moments, both in this country and around the world, but especially in this country uh, in 2024. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but I think the biggest is the election. I just think that the specter of criminal trials, the one day after another, things like what happened as the day of this recording, like the Colorado decision and how like this creates all sorts of crises uh, that we've never been through before, the fact that there will be a result of the election, which you could do the decision tree, right? Which is Biden wins. We could have the same kind of stuff that happened January 6th happening in questioning the legitimacy of the election. Biden loses. Trump wins. Trump has been clear about what he wants to do. That will provoke a, definitely a reaction on the left. And uh, I just think that there's almost no branch on this tree that isn't really scary and that's why maybe my hope and my my prediction that my, which was a hope masquerading as prediction that it, it won't be Biden versus Trump is maybe that's why I continue to harbor that is because maybe I just I, I need to believe that in order to think clearly about the future. But that's my prediction. Mm. Yeah, mine's like not more fun. I feel like this is I feel like civil war is not like a negligible risk and even not like in like the bloody way exactly but i feel like there's a i don't like there's a chance if it's like somehow cyber or like i feel like it would look in a look very different from how it would historically i also think that like given firearms politics republicans would really do way better in a traditional war but regardless i don't like that possibility i think the book the last election um that andrew yang co-authored that came out this year really freaked me the fuck out to be honest and it's a good read um it's fiction but it's very like rooted in a potential um electoral crisis that scares the shit out of me Mm. yeah exciting well hopefully this will be a a much more positive way to end uh which is projects that we are excited about for 2024 um i'll go first because I know you've got some big stuff planned for 2024. You know, on my front, I think there's a few things. One is we've been working really hard on this India podcast. I I went to India for a month and then I'm about to go back in February. And the story we're telling both in the sense of the, there's a particular crime that we're investigating that happened in India, but also like we're pulling back to talk about how that crime says a lot about the past, present, and future of India, and we're going to be releasing it right as their election is happening. I'm really excited about that. We're partnering with Crooked Media 
for that. And um, the second thing is I've been running this fitness group with friends for four years now where I basically create workouts and healthy habits and things like that. And people compete against each other, my friendship group, and it keeps growing every year. And finally, I've been dragging my feet on this, but I just turned it into something more accessible and available to the wider public and more professionalized. And, and I've been on the side, I talked about this a little bit on the podcast when I talked about like how AI tools and other tools make this stuff easy, but I built this community. It's kind of like a color wars for fitness and wellness. Uh, and so that we just built it and we've gotten more interest than I'm like by a long shot than any time I've ever done these seasons. So people, if they want to check that out, it's at joinsquadra.com, squadra, which is uh, Italian for team. And you can check it out and probably if you get this podcast, you probably can go on there and join up before the start of this season, which is in line with New Year's resolution. So that's fun. And then obviously finishing getting the novel out there. Those are sort of three big things that I'm pumped about. How about you, Ricky? Two things. First, the second book is the wheels are starting to turn on that one. I will not yet say what it's about, but it's my own endeavor and definitely a hard pivot from the first one. Um, and then second, I uh, listeners will notice in the new year that I am pivoting my podcasting energy to a new venture in the near future, which I will um, surely return to the Lost Debate to announce at some point in time when the time is right. But um, someone who I'm more than happy to create speculation here, but someone who I talk about often on this podcast is um, going to be a collaborator of mine in the future in 2024. Um, and I'm super excited about that. So Robbie will still be lost debating and I will pop by here and there, but um, definitely it's shifting some focus in 2024. We'll keep bringing you on and having the debates and discussions that we've had, but much less regularly probably. And it's been a blast. I think, you know, you, you are a unique voice out there and have been so wonderful to work with and have like tons of discussions with, like, I don't even know how many hours we've spent talking about things, but probably more hours than I've spent talking so to anybody many. else um, over this period of time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Two years. Yeah. And I, and I know, I know said plans that you're talking about, they're super duper exciting and uh, I'm really excited to have you back on uh, when we're ready to announce it. Yeah, totally. Well, thanks everybody for listening. Remember, leave us a holiday present by rating, reviewing our podcast, leave a positive review. Those written reviews really make a difference for us. Uh, and share this podcast with your friends, especially if you're putting together those year-end lists or people you know, at the holiday parties are asking you what you listen to. And our voicemail, uh, you could leave us voicemails and I imagine we'll probably have a mailbag episode at the beginning of the new year. Our voicemail is 321 See you next year.